following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. We can turn your Bibles to Romans 8. We're going to be in verses 31 through 39 this morning, and so uh, that means uh, that we have reached the halfway point in our study through the book of Romans. And so uh, we, we began the series almost exactly a year ago on May 22nd, uh, 2022. And uh, if you're curious, this is sermon number 39, which is actually, you know, I, I've kept up with some what other guys have done preaching through the book, and I have preached far fewer sermons in Romans 1 through 8 than a lot of other guys have done. So... Uh, anyway, there's some texts I've covered in one week that some guys take three or four to get through. So uh, you're getting the condensed version. But anyway, um, I, I doubt there will be 39 more sermons because uh, chapters 9 through 16 are not quite as dense as, uh, as chapters 1 through 8, at least theologically. Uh, but, but I'm not going to make any guarantees. All right, and There's a lot of really important ground uh, still to cover in chapters 9 through 16, and I'm looking forward to all of that. But, but we're not just at the halfway point mathematically in the book of Romans. Uh, we are also coming at the end of chapter 8 to the conclusion of, of a very significant section of Scripture. In fact, I would say that Romans 1 through 8 is the most significant explanation of the gospel and of the Christian life that, that God has given us anywhere, period. And uh, we've looked at a lot of amazing and very foundational passages of Scripture that, that together create a very important image on what the Christian life is and how it is that we relate to God. And so I hope uh, that this study of Romans 1 through 8 will serve as, a, as an important foundation for how you think about your relationship to God and, and for how you think about the Christian life. But of course, we're not quite done yet. And so Romans 1 through 8 ends climactically with verses 31 through 39. So let's go ahead and read those verses. God says to us, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a wonderful passage of Scripture. It's theologically rich. It's a beautiful, it's beautiful writing, just beautiful imagery. 
But as well, it's a passage that really grows on you as you mature in the Christian life. And that's because the more you mature in Christ, the more you struggle for godliness, the more you come to appreciate just how weak we all are spiritually. And the threats that constantly attack our faith. And if you've been in the church long and been involved in people's lives as long, you've seen the carnage that Satan can cause uh, among people who profess to be saved. You've seen people's faith ruined and shipwrecked and terrible damage done by the temptations of sin and the temptations of the world. And the carnage is real because the threats are real. And this passage doesn't shy away from from the threats that we face in our efforts to serve the Lord. But it also reassures us that none of them can stand up to the almighty, unfailing love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so praise the Lord that no matter what threats you may face to your faith, God's love is always stronger, and it is always more persistent. And therefore, we can trust God that no matter what threats we may face, nothing can separate the child of God from God's love. And verses 31 and 32 begin the passage by challenging us, first of all, to trust God's character. Trust God's character. And he he particularly challenges us to trust two aspects of God's character. So first of all, Verse 31 challenges us to believe that God is strong. God is strong. So so again, verse 31 asks, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, Now that verse, and really the entire passage, use a lot of questions to get us to really think and ponder what is being said. And the first question calls us to reflect on everything that we have learned in Romans 1 through 8, Paul says, What shall we say to all these things? So think back to everything that we've studied in Romans 1 through 8, in the past 38 sermons, and notice that Paul summarizes all of it as God is for us. Now, I can't think of a better summary of Romans 1 through 8 than that. That at one point, I stood under God's wrath. That's where the story begins in chapter 1, verse 18. We were sinners, alienated from God. And yet God in His grace sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Christ died for us and rose again. And then God justified me, not based on anything in me, but simply because of His grace. He justified me by faith based on what Christ did on the cross. And we've also seen that now, all three members of the Trinity are working together to to bring me through the Christian life and to take me step by step towards glory. And so, if you are in Christ, God is for you. That's incredible. Now, Now, we do need to qualify that and say, that God doesn't mean that or God does not mean that He is for you in whatever ambition you might have on your heart. You know that God is for you as you try and climb the ladder or make a lot of money or you know get this over this hurdle in your life. 
No, the context is very clear. That God is for you as you pursue sanctification, as you take step after step towards ultimately reaching glory someday. And how incredible is it to think, though, that that as you pursue the Christian life, as you grow in Christ and move towards glory, that God is for you. Christian, you have the power of God on your side. God is for you in the battle for godliness. And because of that, Paul then turns around and asks, who can be against us? Now, Now, Paul does not mean by that that we don't have spiritual enemies. Because he's actually going to mention a bunch of enemies in verses 35 through 39. So Satan, his demons, the world system, our own flesh, they are all hostile towards your spiritual progress. And compared to you, they are very strong, very powerful. But compared to God, they don't even register. Right? And it's not that they're not there. I mean, Paul is essentially mocking their impotence compared to God's glory. That, that, that God is greater than your sin nature. He's greater than Satan. He's greater than any human opposition to your faith. And so, if you have God on your side, who can be against you? No spiritual foe can rival God. No temptation is stronger than Him. If you have God on your side, which this verse, this passage promises to everyone in Christ, then you have more than enough to overcome every spiritual challenge. So God is strong. And then secondly, we can trust God's character because God is generous. God is generous. And verse 32 asks another question. And this time, again, so that you will really ponder God's kindness and what it means for us. He says in verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? So so consider here God's generosity. This is a great verse. I mean, the, the generosity of God is seen in the fact that He did not spare even His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. Now, now we saw back in verse 15 that, that, that everyone in Christ, we've been adopted into God's family, and, and we are His sons and daughters. But of course, Jesus is God's Son in an entirely different way. I mean, he is eternal God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And yet, God did not spare even Jesus. What does John 3.16 say? John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And we know the story. Jesus came into this world and He suffered as a man. And ultimately, as our text says, God delivered Him over for us all. Speaking there of death. And so Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that the Lord was pleased To crush Him. And so Christ took our guilt. He suffered our punishment so that we could be rescued from the wrath of God. And and, and no one has ever made a more generous gift than God made when He sent Christ to die for us on the cross. 
He gave us an infinite gift. The life of His Son. And so that tells us that God is not stingy or cheap with His grace. He doesn't sweat every blessing. He doesn't give the minimum or give begrudgingly. No. At the cross, God proved that He is generous, He is gracious, and He is compassionate. And so in light of that incredible gift that God gave at the cross, Paul asks a powerful question. Will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Now again, we have to recognize that all things here does not literally mean anything and everything that you want. Right? So, so God is not promising in this verse that if you trust in Him and you know, that He's going to give you health and wealth and prosperity, He's going to make all your dreams come true, whatever desire you have, God is going to grant it to you. No. I mean, we know from last week that, that all things in context is specifically all things that lead to eternal glory. Right? We talked last week about the fact that the ultimate good that, that God is working in us is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. So, so God is working in our lives to do that work. And He will give us all things, generously provide for every need as we pursue godliness. So God is promising you that just as He generously gave His Son on the cross, He will provide every resource you need to fight sin to overcome temptation, and to become like your Savior. Ephesians 1.3 says that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. I remember a teacher saying one time, you know, we, we oftentimes say, you know, God bless you, and there's nothing wrong with saying God bless you, but, but he commented that we've already been blessed. There is no blessing God can give beyond the blessing that He has already given to us. He has given us every spiritual blessing. And that is so encouraging. Because spiritual warfare is intimidating. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed with our own sin, our own weakness. Sometimes our our struggles are are overbearing, and sometimes we look at the road ahead, and we have no idea how we're going to persevere through them. And sometimes we we panic, and and sometimes we think, well, maybe I can improve on God's grace. Maybe there's some book out there or some self-help manual. Maybe there's some drug out there that that can do the job that the grace of God might not be enough to finish. But God gave you His Son. He gave you His Son. He knows what you need. And He freely gives everything that we need. So you don't need to go find something more than Jesus. God's grace is sufficient. So believe Him and trust Him. So so God's strength and God's generosity are strong reasons to trust Him that He will sustain us through every spiritual challenge. So trust God's character. And then secondly, trust God's saving work. Trust God's saving work. And we see this in verses 33 and 34. So, So first of all, Uh, Well, in these verses, Paul highlights both the work of the Father and the work of the Son for our salvation. So first, he tells us in verse 33 that the Father justifies. 
Verse 33 says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now, as we've seen a number of times in the book of Romans, this is another instance where God takes us into his own courtroom. And and God is the judge in this courtroom, and we are the defendant. And Paul asks, who will bring a charge against God's elect? So is there anyone who could stand up in the courtroom of God and, and make an accusation against you that would be worthy of your eternal condemnation? Now, now maybe you don't find that question all that concerning. You'd say, of course not. And sure, I'm not perfect. and Yeah, I've, I've done some things I shouldn't do, but, but I'm a good person. And I have certainly not done anything worthy of God's condemnation. Or maybe it could be very true for for those of us who've been around the gospel for years and years that you've believed the gospel for a long time. And you have begun to take for granted just how sinful you are in the miracle of God's justification. But in either case, Romans has said very clearly that apart from Christ, the answer to that question is yes. Many people could bring accusations against you worthy of death. So so look back at chapter 3. Just for the sake of review, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And so because of that, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world might become accountable to God. That includes you. And it includes me. So so Satan, and, and lots of people in your life, could stand up in the courtroom of God and they could make accusations against you that would merit your eternal condemnation. The Bible, the book of Romans, is abundantly clear about that fact. So so if you are relying on your goodness, the, the good things you've done, the bad things you've avoided, if you're banking on your, your Christian heritage, your Christian name, your, your, identi- your identification, self-identification as a Christian, to, to make you survive the courtroom of God, you should be terrified. Because there is nothing in you that will make you stand up in that day and survive the judgment of God. Now the Bible says, Romans has said that you need to repent of your sin And believe on Christ. Because Christ is the only one who can save you. I mean, notice that this verse, all right, this verse uh, back in chapter 8, verse 33, is not a promise to every person on the planet, is it? He says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? So that's talking about the people that God has chosen for himself and who have believed the gospel. So, So for these people, he says, These people alone, there is hope. But but if you receive Christ, He changes everything. And why is that? 
It's because God is the one who justifies. And so when you believe the gospel, we've seen in Romans that, that you are placed in Christ. And when you're placed in Christ and in His righteousness, God then doesn't look at your sin in His courtroom. He instead looks at the righteousness of His Son. And when you believe on Christ, God declares you not guilty. He justifies you. God, the judge, makes that declaration. And no one, no one can overcome God's declaration. It doesn't matter how much Satan or anyone else might run their mouth. When God says not guilty, it's done. And so if you need to be saved, if you have never received Christ as your Savior, Please receive him today. We'd love to talk with you today. Share the gospel with you. Talk through what the Bible teaches about how you can have a relationship with God. And you need to be saved. And if you are saved, I hope that you never grow calloused to the incredible gift of the gospel and the incredible security that this verse describes. And do you realize that, that every day you commit sins that ought to obliterate your relationship to God? Every day. And yet, your hope remains firm because God is the one who justifies. What an assurance. So so don't listen to Satan's accusations. Listen to God's promises because nothing can threaten our salvation because sovereign God justifies. And that's an incredible source of security and assurance for all of God's people. So the Father justifies, and then verse 34 adds that Christ intercedes. Christ intercedes. Look at verse 34. It says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who has died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So so Paul here asks another probing question. He says, who is the one who? Who condemns? Now again, um, no one should skip over that question. Because we all deserve condemnation. And, and so we might think, well, of course, I, I, don't, I don't deserve common condemnation. But we all, if we're going to appreciate this first, we have to appreciate the condemnation that we all deserve. And do you know that you are safe from that condemnation? And what is our hope of escaping that condemnation? Well, Paul answers with three great works of Christ. So first, he says that Christ died. So so chapter 3, verse 25 said that God displayed Him publicly as a propitiation in His blood. So, So the idea there is that Christ took our sins on Himself. He endured God's wrath as our sacrifice. He bore our judgment. But Christ's death was not the end of the story. Because Paul goes on to add, yes, rather, who was raised. So so we saw in chapter 1, verse 4, that Christ was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And so when Christ rose from the dead, it wasn't just that God revived a body. No, no, He declared His Lordship. His right to rule. And so Christ ascended to the Father's right hand where He sits in power and glory. 
And Paul here says, from his seat at the right hand of the Father, he intercedes for us. Now that's an incredible thought. Yeah, because again, imagine standing in the courtroom of God as the defendant. God's the judge, and Satan or some rival or, or person in your life stands up in that courtroom, and they begin lobbing all sorts of very legitimate accusations against you. Did you see what Kit did yesterday? Did you see how he sinned against your will? That deserves wrath. And so Satan, or who else is is pictured here, is making all these accusations. And yet Jesus is at the judge's right hand. And he answers every accusation. 1 John 2.1 calls Jesus our advocate with the Father. And so Satan says, look at what Kit did this morning. He broke the second commandment, the second great commandment. He was mean to his friend. He, He lost his temper. I mean, he broke the, most, the second most foundational truth. Love your neighbors yourself. He deserves to go to hell for that. And Jesus responds. He's right. What he did was sinful. It was evil. It was wrong. But I paid for that. I paid for that on the cross. And he is justified in me. And the Father always responds to the Son's intercession. And the Father says, yep, Jesus is right. He paid for that. Kit is justified in Christ. And so who is the one who condemns? The answer is no one. Because Christ has saved me forever. And folks, that is so reassuring as I look ahead at the Christian life. Because, because I don't trust myself. And in fact, the more I mature as a Christian, the less I trust myself. Because when you combine my weakness with all the spiritual threats that are out there, then, 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 then I, I mean, it's a ticking time bomb of failure. And in fact, there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's bombs going off every day as I sin and break God's will. But, but as I mature, the less confidence I have in myself, the more confidence I have in Christ. He is strong. He is greater than all my sin. And so remember that because you know, some days as Christians we go to bed and, and we go to bed feeling like absolute spiritual failures. You know, maybe you gave in to that habitual sin again. You can't believe you did what you did. You know, maybe you, you hurt the people that you love most. When you crushed your spouse today, you crushed your kids with some harsh, nasty comment. Or some coworker, or man, you're trying to reach this person with Christ and you said this horrible thing in his presence. And so so there's all sorts of of sins that we commit and and, and we feel like we've we've lost it, we, we failed. We feel far away from God, we feel unworthy of his love. And yet when Satan tempts you to despair, remember that your father is at, you know, the, the Christ is at the Father's right hand and He is interceding for you. And so God will not condemn you. His love is not going to end. His grace is not going to run out. He will always be enough. If you are in Christ, you are safe. 
And I think as well it's important then to, to make sure we distinguish Satan's accusations from the Spirit's, uh, the Spirit's conviction. Yeah, because the Spirit oftentimes brings strong conviction. Right? I mean, He will inspire you to hate your sin and to grieve over the fact that you have sinned. But the Holy Spirit never drives you away from God. And He never drives you away from God's people. The Holy Spirit never inspires despair and hopelessness and apathy. No, the Holy Spirit always drives us towards God. And towards God's people. And He inspires hope and passion to change. So, so if you feel despair, apathy, you know, that, that you, and you begin to run from God as, as you feel guilt over your sin, that's not the Holy Spirit. That is Satan at work. Satan's accusation. And he's trying to isolate you from God and His people, and he's trying to destroy you. So don't listen to him. Listen to this verse. And remember that Christ is at the Father's right hand and He is interceding for you. So, so verses 33 and 34 challenge us to trust God's saving work. Because God justifies, the Father justifies, and Christ intercedes. And then the third major challenge in verses 35 through 39 is trust God's mighty love. Trust God's mighty love. So, so verse 35 begins with another probing question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, I have to say that, that we live in a day where, where most people would say, well, that's a silly question. What kind of question is that? You know, because we love to stroke each other's egos and talk about how great we are. You know, the American gospel is that you are wonderful. You are good. You are lovely. You deserve to be happy you deserve God's love. Why wouldn't God love someone like you? And in light, in light of that, and that kind of thinking, verse 35 sounds like a silly question. Who will separate me from the love of God? I mean, why wouldn't God love me? But even if you know better, I think the way we oftentimes preach the gospel deadens the impact that Paul intends. Because, because in our effort, and I think it's Right? We, we want to protect salvation by grace alone, and we want to protect a doctrine like eternal security. And so very often as Christians, we, we neglect the significance of persevering in, in right belief and right Christian living. But, but remember what God said back in chapter 8, verses 5-9. through nine. Because verses 5-9 through nine here, I think, provide really important context for what Paul is trying to say at the end of this chapter. He says in chapter 8, verse 5, For those who are in the flesh, those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. 
So, so what Paul says there, and, and he says it in a number of other places, is that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who, are, who believe the gospel and are submitted to God's will. And there are people who are rebels against His truth. And if you are a rebel against God's truth, what does he say will happen to you? He says you will die. He says you do not belong to God. So it doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. It doesn't matter if you prayed some, even prayed some sinner's prayer at some point in your life. And of course, we can't know anyone's hearts perfectly. But God is very clear that someone who isn't living in rebellion against God's will should have no confidence in their salvation. Now, now that truth provides an essential backdrop for appreciating the question of verse 35. Because the concern in verse 35 is not that God's love would fail. Right? Because God's love will never fail. No, the concern is, is that my faith might fail. Like, what if I walk away from Him? What if I rebel against His will? What if, you know, what if something comes along and destroys my faith and I walk away from God? I walk away from His love and I'm separated from Him. And that's a real concern. That's a real concern when I look at myself and I look at the world in which I live. And on top of that, these verses, this, these verses add that overwhelming forces are attacking my faith. In fact, back in verses 35, I mean, he goes on to say, he says, who will separate me from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? So, so Paul mentions there seven harsh threats to our spiritual health. Now, now some of these might be a, a direct assault on our faith. That would be persecution, right? That, that, that someone might see my faith and respond with hostility and harm. But as well, some of these things, you know, take nakedness, all right? Like, like nakedness would not have to be the direct result of, of your Christian faith. But, but if you are struggling to put clothes on your back, well, you're going to be tempted to be bitter and angry at God. To think that He has done something to harm you wrongly and you're going to be tempted to compromise your faith in order to get clothes on your back. And so all of these things are things that, that, would, that would cause us potentially to, 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 to walk away from our faith, to, to leave the Lord. And in fact, verse 36 quotes Psalm 44 verse 22 to say, that believers have always faced those hardships. It says, just as is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It, but what, what God is saying there is that the normal experience of God's people is one of living in a hostile world that is trying to destroy us. In fact, by the time Paul wrote the book of Romans, he had already experienced six of the seven hardships that he mentions here in verse 35. The only one that he hadn't experienced was the sword. Because once you endure the sword, you're not alive anymore to talk about it. But just a few years after he wrote the book of Romans, Paul did endure the sword as Nero beheaded him. And so ultimately, Paul experienced all of these. 
So, so when he fires off this list here, this is not blind optimism. This is not you know, some little kid talking about something in theory. No, no, Paul had endured all of these except the last one. And he, had, and he had seen the grace of God carry him through them all. And, and so God was faithful to him. And he is speaking out of his own horrible experience. And, and, and yet, and through all these things, what does he say in verse 37? He says, and yet in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's a fascinating verse. And in this verse, Paul uses a fascinating compound verb. And so the verb that he uses here, the root of the verb, is, is the Greek verb nikao. And so Nike gets their name from this verb, and this verb means victory. But, but Paul here adds a, a, a prefix to it, the, the prefix hooper, and it seems to me that the point here is to communicate emphasis. And so the idea is, is, is that in the Christian life, we, we don't just kind of squeak through with a one-point, triple-overtime victory. No. We overwhelmingly conquer. And so even the worst threat will not ruin a genuine Christian. No, God gives victory. He gives overwhelming victory. Now, I recognize that it doesn't always feel that way, does it? If I were to ask you to raise your hand, Raise your hand if you think you think you are killing it in the Christian life. When you're dominating sin, you're you're making Satan run scared, you are just blowing everything out. I I doubt very many hands would go up. I I would venture to guess that most Christians don't read verse 37 and think, yeah, I am an overwhelming conqueror. I feel that every day. And most of the time we don't feel like overwhelming conquerors. So is Paul wrong? Or is something wrong with you if you don't feel that? Well, well in response, I'd, I'd say for one, that, that you're probably doing better in the Christian life than, than you want to give yourself credit for. I mean, spiritual warfare is intense. And every victory, every step of godliness is huge. I think most Christians are probably making more progress spiritually than they oftentimes appreciate. But the bigger issue is, is that verse 37 is not saying that the Christian life involving the trials of verse 35 is going to feel like a 35-point you know, blowout victory all the time. Like we're just a walk in the park, easy victory. No, no, we ought to understand overwhelming victory in light of what Paul said earlier in chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. So, so turn back there and notice what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So so what God is saying there is that being a conqueror does not mean that you never struggle. No, no, rather it means that spiritual threats do not destroy you. And in fact, what what God says to us there in chapter 5 is that instead of these threats destroying us, they actually sanctify us. And by the fact that they refine us and sanctify us, 
They produce hope and encouragement that God will continue to grow us and change us. And so we press forward. Now, if you've been saved for any length of time, you've probably seen that happen in your life. You've gone through some low points, some heavy temptations. Satan has come after you in some intense ways. And yet somehow, some way, by the grace of God, you endured. And you came out stronger in the end than you were beforehand. And so rather than that trial or that difficulty crushing you, it actually became a means of God's grace to be formed in your life. And and so in that sense, you are a conqueror. Because you are not being destroyed, you are being refined by the hardships of life. And in light of that, notice Paul's conclusion in chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. He says, in light of all this, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those verses are are quite the the outburst of excitement at the end of this incredible section of Scripture. So so Paul here lists several things which could act as as enemies of our faith. Now, Now everything in this list is not necessarily bad. He mentions, for example, good angels in the list. But but really what he's doing here is he's summarizing all of life's experiences. Anything that could happen to you. So he begins, first of all, with life and death. And that pretty much sums it all up, right? There's life and there's death. And of course, life and death bring many highs and many deep lows. He then adds... Angels and principalities. And principalities there is probably a reference to demonic powers. Of course, Ephesians 6 says that we wrestle against those things. We face deep hostility from Satan and his spiritual powers. Then he mentions things present and things to come. So, so maybe, you know, today you came into church uh, in the midst of some heavy, intense spiritual battle. And maybe, if that's not the case, you have reason to fear that some great temptation or challenge is ahead in your future. But whether it's today or tomorrow, God sees it all. He will not be surprised by anything that's coming in your life. He is sovereign over it all. So things present, things to come. Next, he mentions mentions in verse 39, nor height, nor depth. And that seems to be a reference really to everything in the created universe. So so from the lowest valley to the most distant star, all of it, whatever it might be, and in case anything got left out possibly, he says any other created thing. Which of course is everything outside of God. Because God is the creator of it all. And And so he mentions here every possible thing. And again, some of these things are bad. Some of these things we, we immediately see as a threat to our spiritual health. You know, but even the best things in your life can become a threat to your spiritual health if, if you begin to love them in place of God. Anything can become a distraction, a worldly care that keeps you from loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the question is, can anything in life, anything in your past, 
anything in your future separate you from the love of God in Christ? I mean, is it possible that Satan might come up with just the perfect temptation that would crush your faith, cause you to turn away from God, rebel against His will, and never believe on Him again? Well, what does God say? He says, absolutely not. And this chapter began in verse 1 by saying, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now he concludes by saying that, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you are in Christ, you are safe. Your faith is secure. And you will, God will keep you to the end. And He will bring you to glory. No true child of God can possibly lose his salvation. Paul couldn't be clearer. And so God will never, that's because He will never reject His Son. Christ has secured every grace for His people. And so God's love will always be near. Christian, you will never be separated from the love of God in Christ. You will persevere through every challenge. God will refine your faith. It might not always be pretty. In fact, it might be very ugly some days. But God will be faithful. And someday, He will finish the process. You will be perfectly conformed to the image of His Son. And you will dwell in the presence of God's glory and grace for all of eternity. So folks, God is for us. That's the message of Romans 1-8. through 8. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Heavenly Father, we thank You for this incredible truth. We thank You that You are for Your people. What an assurance. What a, what a grace. And so we thank You today for Your amazing grace that is over us and around us for all that You do. God, thank You for justification. Thank You for Christ's intercession. Thank You for for how You are at work. Thank You for Your perfect purpose. God, I pray that all of us would rest in the love of God and in Your perfect grace, Your mighty grace to sustain us through everything that is ahead. Lord, I pray for any who are here who have not received Christ. Lord, we pray that today they would repent of their sins and believe the gospel. That they would receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that they could know the assurance, the love of God as, as reflected in your, in your word. And so God, be with us this week. I pray that we would walk in your grace. That we would keep these truths close to our, our hearts and our minds that they would sustain us and keep us. And we thank you for the assurance that you will do what you have said. In Jesus' name, amen.